Hello, and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. What you are about to hear is our Culture Gab Fest conversation about the last eight years of producing our show, what we thought when we first met each other, what our first few episodes were like, our high points, low points, and what we make of what you make of our show. Our friends at the Political Gab Fest, Double X and Hang Up have made similar segments, so check your Slate Plus podcast feeds for a special podcast extra that features all four conversations. Thank you so much for being members and for supporting Slate and the work that we do and for listening to our show week in and week out. All right, let's commence. Dana, Steve, it's been eight years. Yay us. <laughs> you guys is, is looked at me a, with that a question? <laughs> stunned horror. You're like, can we leave now? Can this be done? Um, all right, I'm going to start with a confession. When we first started recording the show, uh, I suspect that our first few episodes were like a little stiff because I didn't know either of you that well. And I was super intimidated of both of you because you seem to know a lot. And I felt that I had as an editor only the knack for asking questions about shit I didn't know in hopes of making smart people work clearer to other people who didn't know as much stuff as them. That dynamic hasn't really changed, but I've just grown more comfortable with it over time, I think. <laughs> um, but I would basically describe myself as somewhat terrified for the first three to four months of our show. What, uh, And yet also really excited to get to talk to you guys every week about culture. What did it feel like when we started doing the show to you? You know, my memories, oh, God, I would I would hate to re-listen to those shows now because I think all of us did not know each other when we're, we're more stiff and we're probably trying to show off more and just sort of in general less goofy and hopefully humbled by our many <laughs> embarrassing <laughs> forays into culture than we are now. Um, but I specifically remember Andy Bowers taking us aside after, I don't know, a few weeks or months of doing the show and saying, could you all make fun of each other and laugh a little bit more? <laughs> that was his note, that essentially we had to be less serious and less stiff and be a little more goofy. And, uh, and we've been faking it ever <laughs> since. <laughs> Fake laughing at every joke. But that was a great note. That was exactly the note we needed. And I think it was when we started to get to know each other better and be able to tease each other or maybe think of what a Julia kind of response to something would be and then be surprised that the Julia response was a different response. That's when the show started to get mm -hmm. more energy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, also, it's important to remember there was almost no such thing as podcasting when we started. There was certainly no t template at all, scarcely any, right? I mean, it wasn't like, you know, we all grown up listening to podcasts or understood what they were. Should oh, yeah. Be. There was... was much less of a sense of what you should be doing or saying. And I think maybe that's why we were stiff is that we were thinking, well, we're on the radio or something. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, absolutely. So it was really inchoate, really developing medium. And that was kind of fun looking back on it. Um, the other thing is that if I recall correctly, I had done a bunch of uh, Yeah, you were the book seasoned clubs. vet. Cause... Well, uh, yeah, I mean, relatively. Because you've been right? doing it for like six months or something. <laughs> I've done three episodes of the book club, <laughs> one of which was with you and Katie Royfe on the on the book Eat, Pray, Love, which I, I had a kind of epic hatred for and expressed it. Like I, essentially, I mean, I always forget that you were there, and you reminded me. And now, I now I, it's firmly in my head that you were the third person present in the room when Katie Royfe and I each picked up the lid of an ash can and began bashing each other <laughs> over the head as hard as we could. And Eat, pray, and love this. Katie, you made me read this book. <laughs> and I think my choice was reading this book or getting down on all fours with a ball gag in my mouth and like a full gimp outfit on and being, you know, videoed for YouTube. And now I'm second guessing my choice. This is not a book that I admired. And I'm curious why you do. Is there any 
in place in particular you'd like to start in mounting a defense for a book that I regard as nearly indefensible? Well, um, I'll start out by saying um, – Yeah, and, I- and the funny thing was I got this like really lethal positive reinforcement for my performance on that show from everybody including Andy Bowers. I mean it was it was massively downloaded because the book was a big deal. Katie's a big name and I think people – loved hearing her get bashed and then they realized what a pompous git i was so they loved hearing me get bashed by her and i thought of course this is the template of podcasting so out of the inchoateness i chose that as my model for something like the first year of the show i thought the format was me picking up on the slimmest thread of your argument Julia or your argument, Dana, and then finding an ash can and sort of bashing you with it or getting on a soapbox and 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 bloviating uh, in response to it. And it was like this kind of has acted as my group therapy, I think, is where I'm going with this, like the acknowledgement that you're in the presence of other people with a point of view that's equally, if not more valid than your own, uh, was I think it both helped make the show better and mitigated some of the worst aspects of my personality. But um, so Whoa. I never felt bashed by an ash can. And I thought that Katie Royfe book club argument was hilarious and, and brilliant. And because she happens so I should to be go back someone. To that style. That <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> she's, I she's a very adversarial, polemical no, no, kind exactly. of thinker, you know, unlike Julia and I, I would say. I'm having like a fact check in my head, which is that I recall that Katie Royfe book club being after we started taping. I don't. That's not. That is, I no, it's not possible. It's not possible. I know one reason it's not possible is that I listened to that book club because we were going to do this show. Andy Bowers was telling us the idea and kind of sketching it out. And I didn't know you very well. I'm not sure. Maybe I'd met you at a party or yeah. something like that. And, and so Andy said, oh, well, listen to the book club that he did. Right. And, uh, and I, I remember listening to it in the bathtub. I had it on, you know, like on the whatever windowsill of the tub and just sinking underwater with hysterical laughter <laughs> when you and Katie went at each other. Actually, that was the very first podcast I ever recorded. Oh, so, yeah. Whoa. All right. I'm all, my brain's all scrambled on that front. It's interesting because I feel like I don't r- recall the arc of Steve's bloviation as being a sheer downward trajectory <laughs> from Ashcan Bash to to just like supple empathy. <laughs> I feel like. Uh-oh. No, no. She it's... says reaching for, for Ashcan. <laughs> no. Uh but I feel like we were too afraid to bash each other for a little bit, oh, and then we got fun. We got we got slightly bashier, and now I feel like when we bash, it's with so much like history and context that you're kind of like aware. <laughs> the ash can lid feels like a velvet pillow. <laughs> well, it's you like telegraph it a little bit, or you're like, now this is the point where it's gotten a little meta, right? It's like this is where usually I would bash you for X, but let me problematize that in some way or whatever. Do you guys remember early episodes where you felt like, oh, maybe this is working and is is like a, a thing? Do I remember any episodes? Where <laughs> I mean, this isn't particularly early because remembering what studio we were in, I think it was our second studio. So it must have been a couple of years into the show. But I remember an endorsement segment that I thought this is too ridiculous to work. And it ended up being one of our best endorsement segments ever. I think I think one of the topics that we had been rock god or whatever it was called the new guitar what the the guitar Guitar video hero Mm -hmm. guitar hero (laughs) rock god guitar hero and we talked about that and maybe we had a gaming person in to talk about it but that's not the the fond memory i have the fond memory is that as an endorsement segment we decided that we would each pick our favorite beatles song because this this 
game was all about um, covering Beatles songs. And I thought that just seems so ridiculous. Who cares about our favorite Beatles songs? And it ended up being a great conversation about what's a great Beatles song and, you know, John's song versus a Paul song and what it sort of means to have different, you know, your favorite song change through the years. And it was a great conversation. Although I have often been told that my favorite Beatles song should be Julia, which is a great song a great to have as the song that's the song with your name in it. It's a, it is a great song. I love I'm So Tired. I love that great song. Great song. And that's a, that's a Lennon. It's a classic Lennon. I just love the way it breaks down into loud, crazy noise at the end of it. It starts so sleepy and then sleepiness becomes loud. And that's so how sleepiness feels. And it's amazing. I didn't know that my respect for you could tower any higher, Julia, <laughs> but now it dwarfs all human reality. You, after biffing the favorite Beatles question, <laughs> I've made a stunning comeback. A stunning comeback. Dana. In my life. With really? that great harpsichord solo in the middle. Oh, and it's just it's just probably one of the few that I do still listen to, actually. It's fairly oh, high in the rotation. Sometimes I'm just in the mood to hear that song. It also always, always makes me I cry. I think that's also a Lennon song, which is going to make it three for three, because mine is by far, in a way, Dig a Pony off of the Let It Be uh, album. But um... Another early moment in the show that I remember feeling like, oh, there's a thing happening here in terms of what we're doing and what the relationship to the audience is, is the Sketch Steve contest. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> Of course, Molly Lawless won it, and I have—I still have the T-shirt with her drawing of Steve on it. Um, but I forget how it came up. Like, so, I think somehow it came up in an endorsement or segment or something that like there's no pictures of Steve on the internet, and that Steve is like very difficult to discern and mysterious. Steve, the uh, the ash can basher with the great vocabulary, was this becoming this creature of intrigue among our listenership? And so somehow, as like a tossed off half joke. We were like, oh, well, make a drawing of what you think Steve looks like and upload it to our Facebook page. I don't even remember what the technology was at that point. I think I know we did make a Facebook gallery of the drawings and we got so many, which I think was like an early surprising indication of people's interest in our trash can bashing. And they were so funny and specific. A couple of them were mean. But I think overall it was pretty flattering. Can you, can you talk about your actual emotional experience at the Sketch Steve contest, Steve? Uh, I, I didn't feel flattered. Uh, I can, we can start there. But uh, I was very, very amused. Yeah. Uh, they were very funny. I don't, I don't remember any that were cruel. But, I mean, that's another funny thing is the emails. I mean, Andy had to take me aside at one point and say, you can't be thin-skinned about some of the emails that you're getting because a general l rule in in – any like endeavor is that the most motivated people to give you feedback are are the angry people. And we got a lot of really negative feedback at first, which I attributed in part, I mean, my goal early on with the show was, you know, podcasting is a niche medium. You're not trying to get 30 million people. To, you're not even trying to get a million. It was pre-serial. You weren't even trying to get a million people to listen, right? Or 500,000. You were really looking for a small and really devoted audience. Devotion was more important than volume. And I thought, you know, for better and for worse, nobody really talks like, I'm, I'm going to say this phrase and then I'm going to write myself an angry letter. <laughs> but nobody really talks like a, a grad student, right, on, in the media ever. And the political roundtable is a staple of, of American the American media diet. And there are thousands of them. And People get together regularly and discuss the week in politics from all different kinds of points of view and with a very high tolerance for intellect and wonkery. And why don't they do it with culture, right? I mean, our lives are being as determined by the giant media conglomerates who give us 
popular culture as it is by Washington, D.C. and political figures, there ought to be a cultural roundtable. And my second idea was like, like really test the limits of an audience's tolerance for, I mean, somewhat pathetically hyper-educated people talking the way they speak, right? And that people had never heard it and they fucking hated it. And I can't blame them. I mean, if you overhear a bunch of grad students over a beer talking to one another, you do, you want to behead them. I mean, and Andy was very good about it. He said, it's a sign that it's working. It's a sign that it's working. You know, if you're a magnet for ardor of any kind, you've done something right. I also feel like this is like the ultimate uh, Rorschach of at least even me. We'll see how Dana feels about it. Because I remember the early email being like, yeah, a couple weird gripers who clearly seemed like stupid, dismissible axe grinders. And then like so many emails from people who were like, whoa, it's so fun. It's so fun to show up and hang out with you guys every week and hear you talk in this way. And would you please talk about this? And, uh, you know, you really helped me through this year when I took an eight hour drive every weekend to my mom in hospice care three states away. And uh, I mean, there was some email that was hostile in various directions. There's a hostile email to me and Steve. There's like never been a hostile Nothing. email to Dana. Like, has there ever <laughs> been a negative <laughs> not email? One, not a single one. Can you, I mean, if, if, if there one. is one, you would remember. I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure there has to be somebody offended yeah, by yeah, some yeah, word yeah, choice yeah, somewhere. Yeah, no, there's not. There's <laughs> just not. Dana is like unhateable, <laughs> but Steve and I have our qualities. Um, all right. Well, we've kept it fairly abstract. Let's talk about specific memorable segments, highlights, lowlights, things that that would be fun to revisit. Dana, do you have a nomination? Well, yeah, but before we got this this segment together, the producer polled us on this. Can you can you mention some of your favorite segments from the past? I mean, this is such a, a classic that it's sort of, you know, this is Beatles song, favorite Beatles song all over again. But I, I have to say the the endorsement of the Miss Mouse book at that one Mohonk show. All of our shows recorded during Slate Retreats, which used to be at the Mohonk Mountain House in upstate New York, have a similar quality of kind of hungover loopiness and silliness where we were up partying the night before and were in meetings all the previous day and are just kind of blowing off steam. But Julia's endorsement at that one particular retreat show was was just memorable. It is a child's picture book called Need a House, Call Mrs. Mouse. And it is about a fictional mouse architect. And it is beautifully illustrated. And basically, the mouse runs, she's like a field mouse, and she runs a small architectural firm, and she builds. <laughs> you guys are looking at me. <laughs> like, I'm completely. <laughs> no, not at all. Mouse architecture is an important cultural trend, Julia. Mouse architecture. I love. <laughs> How fucking wackadoo this answer is. Please don't deprive me of it. I'm crying. <laughs> and if I may point out, I feel like a very similar dynamic happened in the recent endorsement when I went on about Bob Ross and Peapod the Pocket Squirrel and you guys lost it in tears of laughter, too. Something about just making your co-hosts lose it is, I think, oh, yeah. makes for good radio. So fun. I also feel like when you endorse Nutmeg, Dana, that also... I never understood why, but... <laughs> <laughs> well... That was part of what was so funny. <laughs> Tout est là, as my philosophy professor used to say. Tout est là. Uh, yeah, no, I I guess here's like a real shame center. Do you ever feel proud of a little riff? Do you like or do you guys allow yourself pride in, in the delivering of your blows and points in the show? I'm sure in the moment I do. I'm sure many a taping I've walked out preening over some rant or other, but I can't reconstruct a single one. Can you? Shame comes much more easily to me. And <laughs> after that comes regret. But there, I definitely derive my juvenile self-congratulatory frisson from being funny. So 
guy <laughs> made you laugh. I suck a tiny bit less for the next nine seconds. <laughs> Clock is ticking. Okay. Okay. So now that we've had happy feelings or uh, shameful pride, we have had fights. Some of them are performative fights. Some of them are genuine fights. I guess let's call them debates and arguments. But any, do you guys remember any particularly good knockdown dragouts that we've had? Well, I mean, there's the the recurring Steve Jody kind of dyad. I don't know what you'd even call it—the agon <laughs> over Taylor Swift <laughs> that's now covered several years and albums and and Kanye fights and Ryan Adams covers and every possible iteration to the point where I think we actually had a moratorium at some point. Like, unless Taylor Swift spontaneously combusts or something, we're not talking about her for the next year. Yeah. Which we promptly broke. Yeah. <laughs> in that episode. I mean, I think I like that fight because that fight is about so much more than Taylor Swift, obviously, right? That fight is about two very different ways of conceiving what music can do, what songwriting is, you know, what sort of authenticity and creativity and pop culture should be. Absolutely. Yeah. Art and showbiz. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's I, I love talking about fighting with Jody about those subjects. Well, you keep wanting to make some grand argument about the fact that that quote overproduced, which I don't even know what that means. Where does the line oh, between produced and overproduced uh, stop? But, but anyway, uh, that, 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 I mean, where does the line between anything? I mean, where does one thing become a surfeit? I mean, th- these are these are like all aesthetic car- categories. They're 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 based in nothing but taste. Overproduced means exactly whatever whatever original impulse to human feeling gave rise to the work of art in the first place. You yourself said at the beginning of this show, one of your favorite cuts from the album was over fucking produced. I said it was that, fussily produced. I didn't okay, like the pay. Well, I didn't fussily like, produced is a fucking here, synonym here we for go. overproduced. No, no, no. no. I, it wasn't over. I didn't like the particular production choices that were made on oh, that song. God no, it's heaven. true. <laughs> All right. Well, before we adjourn, uh, among the things that we did in preparation for this walk down memory lane was ask our listeners on Facebook for some of their highlights and things that they remembered. Shall we just uh, run through a few of those? Um, Daniel Pollock Pelsner uh, wrote, hands down, the abstract nouns edition on how we talk, the perfect meta episode for a show that's at heart about how to have a feisty, kind, urbane, engaged conversation about culture. More meta. We've even used this episode at my college to spur discussions about the kinds of conversations we want to foster. That's so nice. That's like another episode that was a oddball episode, like an, un- an unusual episode. I think our three topics that week when we hadn't had time to watch any movies was like voice, vocabulary, and oh, yeah. um, I forget what the third abstract noun was. Voice, but it was but, basically three properties of, of language, right? Yeah. It was a very abstract show. That was a really fun one. Oh, and I, I love that a listener named Theo Bachrock wrote in to remind us of the time we tried chat roulette live on the air <laughs> without any preparation. <laughs> that must have made for some interesting audio because I think you could imagine the horror of what we were confronting just by our squeals as we would. Didn't we just get flashed? <laughs> like, didn't we just record us getting like somebody's tumescent situation? Uh, well, it's been a treat, team. Here's to another eight or more. You're here. Oh, by all means. Thank you so much, Slate Plus listeners, for supporting Slate and the journalism we do, for listening to so many years of our show that you were interested enough to listen to this segment, which I assume you have if you're still here. Uh, and thank you dearly, Stephen Dana. It's such a, such fun to get to chat with you every week. It's a real privilege. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, absolutely.